Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Nonpartisanship, non-alignment, and neutrality are the preferred policy of the Catholic Church and even more of the Holy See for most of their history. This flows directly out of the main charge conferred upon the apostles by Christ. According to St. Matthew's Gospel, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Matthew 28. Making disciples happens irrespective of group, country, or political, economic, or philosophical system. The church carries on its task under and alongside all sorts of political regimes and in the presence of the rise and fall of numerous countries, nations, and empires. She does not wish to be distracted by the projects of human political power and is at her best when she is peacefully allowed to carry on the task of preaching the gospel to all without interference. At times in the past 2,000 years, she has played a more active role in overt political affairs, but then she has also withdrawn from them too, depending on the circumstances. And she wants to talk to everyone, not being hindered by the political groupings established by states and their leaders for their own earthly goals, worthy or unworthy. The Holy See has followed this pattern as well. The last 200 years have seen a period in which the role of the Pope and thus of the Holy See has grown over the church as an, ever, as an even more visible leader and source of unity but also in which the prevailing political system of countries of uh, Christian and European civilization has become separate and more distinct from the church in the name of religious freedom. During the same period, there have always been times in which particular countries or states, as well as particular parties or regime supporters, have seen themselves as more closely aligned with and supportive of the mission of the Catholic Church and of the Holy See, and even of the person of the Pope himself. <clears throat> In the last 200 years, France, especially under the Second Empire, but hearkening back to the French Kingdom and the Austrian Empire, were often rivals for this role. For its part, the Holy See has always sought to maintain a balance of power, especially among powers geographically close to Rome, so that no one Catholic power would ever become too powerful. Just a little more than 200 years ago, the last Benedictine Pope, Pius VII, returned to Rome after years of captivity ordered by the Emperor Napoleon. The most important reason for France's occupation of the Papal States and arrest of this Pope was the Pope's refusal in the Papal States to file the decreed blockade of British ships, as well as of neutral ships that called on British ports, Napoleon's continental system. The Holy See would not abandon its non-alignment and neutrality, even in the face of the French Empire at the height of its power. A clarification to keep in mind, Nonpartisanship and non-alignment are different. The former, nonpartisanship, should be seen as neutrality in the face of political party, liberal, conservative, capitalist, socialist, etc., or regime type, monarchic, aristocratic, democratic. The Holy See will favor any regime or party that works for the common good, a classical position enunciated, among other places, in Diuturnum by Leo XIII in 1881. And there are a variety of ways to do that. The latter, non-alignment, entails neutrality among countries. If the Pope gives the title Most Catholic Majesty to the King of Spain, he gives the title Most Christian to the King of France and Most Faithful to the King of Portugal. 
they are all good in the eyes of the Pope, and he will treat them equally while respecting their differences. Superlatives can be invented for everyone. The Holy See, following non-alignment, will not join any alliance. Thus, it is not a full member of the United Nations, the Security Council of which could require all members to use force against a threat to peace and security. It will be present at, but not part of, political alliances or groupings of states. An important benefit of this policy is that the Holy See is free to talk to anyone, even those outside of the groupings. It owes no allegiance to other states. The Holy See has a long tradition of mediating disputes, and this is enhanced by the policy, because the Holy See is not on any side ever. We shall turn now to briefly examine several cases of papal nonpartisanship and non-alignment, or departures from these, after the great Pope Pius VII. What is the cost for abandoning the preferred policy? What is important enough to cause such a course of action? And what are the results? After the restoration of peace following the Napoleonic Wars in the Congress of Vienna in 1815, legitimate monarchy was restored as the preferred political system, and the major powers of Europe, Great Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, created the Concert of Europe to resolve disputes before they grew into major conflicts. Pius VII did not join the conservative bloc, however, in its use or approval of armed force in the suppression of revolts during the 1820s, and he continued to support the practical and realistic and moderate policy of his Secretary of State, Ercole Cardinal Consalvi. The Zelanti, or zealous ones, on the other hand, believed that the, church, that the church should be closely allied with the conservative monarchies and their suppression of freedom of speech and press, use of secret police against liberals. Liberals doesn't mean what it means today. Liberals are people who favor constitutionalism and rule of law. All right? The conservatives were against that. They, were, they favored pap, pap, uh, uh, royal absolutism. Use of secret police against liberals and anti-constitutionalism. They did not fear the church becoming the ideological auxiliary of these regimes. For example, Charles X's uh, reign in France, the last king of, well, the last legitimate king of France, if you exclude uh, Louis Philippe, or of the leading conservative states, example, Austria and Russia. Internally, within the papal states, they favored papal absolutism, clerical power, including control of public administration, and Austrian regime privileges and customs, including restoration of the Jewish ghetto. The death of Pius VII in August 1823 led to the election of a, of a cardinal belonging to this faction, who took the name Leo XII. Leo pursued a conservative policy within the Papal States, but even he followed an, an independent course in foreign relations, not closely mirroring the, the policy of Austria. Leo's conservatism and the lack of satisfaction in Rome and among cardinal electors with it led to the election of a moderate at the death of Pope Leo, who took the name Pius, Pius VIII in order to signal a closer affinity of his coming pontificate with the more reformist policy of Pius VII. Pius VIII maintained a moderate policy during the 1830 revolutions in France and Belgium and refused permission for Austria to deploy troops in the Papal States due to concern about a possible revolt there following on the accession of a new king of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies who might have incited Italian nationalism, but then died suddenly, about a year and a half, his pontificate, very short. The new pope, Gregory XVI, at first tried to avoid asking for Austrian military assistance to put down a nationalist revolt in the Papal States, but in the face of the revolt's success, he made the request. The military intervention took place, order was restored, and the resolution of the national problem in Italy put off for another day. Gregory XVI's and his successor, Blessed Pius IX's pontificates and their political uh, policies within the Papal States and, inter and internationally became overshadowed with a perceived strategic requirement of retaining sovereignty over the Papal States. 
in order to guarantee the freedom of the church. And focusing on this, they came to depend on other states. When a particular threat is seen to be overwhelming, the earlier French Revolution occupation of Rome, French interference in church organization and appointments, and imprisonment of the sovereign pontiff were so damaging to the church's ability to carry out its mission, the preservation of sovereignty was seen as essential, the Holy See abandons both nonpartisanship and non-alignment in order to deal with the major problem, as it did under both of these popes. Ultimately, sovereignty over the papal states in the city of Rome was lost, but in the long and complex interaction with the Kingdom of Piedmont, which later became the Kingdom of Italy, it was restored in a greatly modified form through the Lateran Accords of 1929, and that's where we are now. So the, the Pope is a sovereign. The Holy See, which is not the same thing only as the Vatican City State, it's more than that, uh, is a sovereign, has sovereignty, but it's a very small sovereign. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't have interests like even a small country would have, or even a small country like Monaco or, um, or um, Malta, for example. All right, it doesn't have, it's smaller than that even. All right, what were the costs of this policy? First of all, it failed. Another revolution took place in Rome, causing the Pope to have to flee the city in very dramatic episodes during 1848-1850. The policy did not stop the most successful of the Italian states, Piedmont Savoy, from taking over, conquering, and subordinating all of the other Italian states, including the Papal States, to its sovereignty and control. Efforts expended by the Popes in fighting this threat caused huge resources to be expended that might have been used in missionary and charitable efforts and responding to the new social injustices accompanying the Industrial Revolution as it spread in Belgium, France, Germany, the United States, and even Northern Italy. Also, how many faithful Catholics were alienated by the seeming unreasonable intransigence of blessed Pope Pius IX? Further, the fruitful intellectual dialogue between Catholicism and liberal democratic thought taking place at this time, especially in France, a dialogue that would bear fruit much later in the 20th century and the many strains of Catholic personalism was inhibited. True, the Holy See did many other things as well during this period, including the proclamation of the dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and of papal infallibility, as well as other results of the First Vatican Council, the spread of proper church organization all over the world into the territories of colonial empires, as well as further expansion in the Western Hemisphere, as well as the approval of myriads of new religious orders, which were responding to the new social, economic, and population conditions of the era. But the political situation, conflict over the papal states, and then over Rome itself, and then the period of the popes as prisoners of the Vatican consumed effort and energy that might have been used in more rewarding ways. Another interesting case of the Holy See's non-alignment is seen in the policy of Pius XII. The criticism of this pope especially focuses on his maintaining such a policy during the atrocities, especially the Holocaust, perpetrated by Nazi Germany in the course of World War II. The critique rests on the fact that an entity which is primarily a moral authority rather, rather than a conventional sovereign state, the Vatican, the Holy See, was not doing precisely the thing that a moral authority should be doing at a time of great moral evil, loudly and vigorously denouncing Nazi Germany and its war crimes and crimes against humanity. Such denunciation could perhaps influence people to oppose that evil. At the same time, the Pope allowed and even encouraged many under his authority to save as many Jews and others as they could by hiding them giving them Vatican passports or influencing Latin American or other countries to provide passports and assisting them to escape. The Pope and the Vatican insisted at this time on the impartiality of the Holy See and on its legal requirement and political need to remain neutral among the warring powers. On the one hand, this was a legal requirement of a neutral sovereign during war, as well as a requirement of the Lateran Agreement. It was practically speaking even more important after Italy, which surrounds the territory of the Holy See, as well as its extraterritorial buildings outside of Vatican City, 
entered the war on the side of Germany in June of 1940. A pope such as Pacelli, who was a diplomat by profession, would not and did not give an easy excuse for Germany's ally Italy to take action against the Holy See. The pope was especially concerned about German Catholics and possible retaliation against them, as well as preserving what possible remaining protection was afforded them by the 1933 Concordat, negotiated by him as Secretary of State under the leadership of his predecessor, Pius XI. But it extends to the silence of the Pope regarding the Nazi atrocities against the Jews and other persecuted groups. The vague and general statements the Pope made were seen by most observers, not just Allied diplomats, as too weak and were designed to not disturb the German leaders so as to avoid retribution against German Catholics or worse persecution for others. And I'm going to read my footnote here. Another side of the story is the active but very secret collaboration by the Pope in the anti-Hitler ring of mostly Catholic German officers who carried out the unsuccessful July 1944 assassination attempt on Hitler. The story of this is told by Mark Riebling in his book, Church of Spies, The Pope's Secret War Against Hitler, 2015. According to Riebling's account and analysis, the Pope purposefully moderated his speeches and documents so as not to provoke greater anti-Catholic repression in Germany that would cause the cabal to be discovered. Thus, the Pope did take sides, although very secretly, in order to protect the efforts of, of the small but highly placed group within the Third Reich, which could possibly bring about positive change there. A pope as scrupulous about impartiality during the war did not maintain this stance during the Cold War. Pius XII abandoned normal nonpartisanship in the 1948 Italian election, when the Vatican overtly supported the Christian Democrats, and a few months later, when a previously decreed excommunication was made public against all who voted for or assisted communists. Further, the Holy See overtly approved of the formation of the NATO alliance in 1949 and took many steps during the rest of Pope Pius's reign, demonstrating open support for this particular grouping of states directed against another group led by the USSR. The extraordinary danger in this case was the danger of communism. It was clear that the communist USSR eliminated overt Roman Catholicism in its territory, both prior to the beginning of World War II and within territory annexed to the USSR during and after the war in the Baltic states, Belarus, and Ukraine and pressured and supported communist surrogates to do the same thing in East and Central Europe, uh, East and Central European countries, which had been occupied by Soviet military forces at the end of the war. There was a real possibility that the power of communist parties within the West European governments could lead to the same type of measures being imposed on the church in those countries. Such a serious danger allowed for the departure from the preferred policy of nonpartisanship and non-alignment, even by a pope who had been clearly following such a policy vis-a-vis -vis Germany during the Second World War. But communism had furnished clear evidence already of the grave damage that it would cause the church, and the Holy See was not constrained at this time by negative effects against Catholics, since the damage in the USSR and Eastern Europe had already been done. What were the costs of this shift from nonpartisanship and nonalignment to very overt party identification and country preference during this pontificate? On the one hand, there is the criticism of a moral authority which does not denounce the greatest case of genocide which has ever taken place in history, and which thus reduces the credibility and effectiveness of the Holy See as a moral leader. On the other hand, there is the feeling of abandonment of Catholics behind the Iron Curtain. The bad luck timing of events during the war allowed them to fall on the side of the line controlled by Soviet armed forces. Further, for Third World Catholics, the Holy See appeared consumed mostly by its connection with the U.S.-led coalition that was opposing Soviet communism. The Church was furnishing ideological support again for a particular block of states in its political conflicts for power over another group of states. The church's main message was blunted in that it looked too much like the philosophical and ideological department of the anti-communist campaign.
Much closer in time, and even in our own memory, is the shift in perceived alignment visible in the pontificate of Pope St. John Paul II. Even while opposing the Soviet-style communist system for the first half of his over 26-year reign, John Paul II was careful to also critique moral failings present in the practice of the democratic capitalist states. Still, from the very first year of the pontificate and the dramatic return visit of Polish-born Pope Wojtyla to his homeland, June 1979, until the failure of the hardline communist coup attempt in Russia in August 1991, the Holy See's international focus was, was associated with the U.S.-led opposition to communism and to the USSR-led Warsaw Pact. In 1991, beginning perhaps with a June visit that year to Poland, John Paul II shifted to more often criticizing the practice and example of democratic Western countries. During this trip, his speeches especially contained a warning to Poles who were in the process of transforming their political and economic system to one resembling the Western European model to recover their own Christian traditions instead of blindly following the prevailing Western secularism. The consumerism and materialism anti-life mentality and ideologies, and social and economic injustices were things which John Paul warned his old countrymen to avoid from the Western experience. I'm going to read my footnote here. The idea that getting moral, religious, and social justice foundations right in order to avoid future political disasters and punishments was a key idea in the young Carol Wojtyla's World War II-era play, Jeremiah, set in early 17th century Poland. Poland suffered the consequences in the partitions of the late 1700s. So young Karol Wojtyla during World War II wrote a play called Jeremiah. It refers back to the prophet Jeremiah, to the Bible. If you remember the story, Jeremiah the prophet was criticizing the leaders of the kingdom of, of Judea, uh, who thought that they were God's chosen people, therefore they don't have to worry about anything. Well, no, that's not quite right, Jeremiah warned them. They were conquered by the Babylonians. All right. So, John, uh, Karol Wojtyla sets his play, Call Jeremiah, in early 17th century Poland, at the time of Poland's greatest success, greatest extent in its territory, greatest influence, because they weren't getting things right. They weren't getting uh, social justice questions right. And that was going to come back to haunt them 150 years later in the partitions, when Poland lost its independence. So, he's... he's in 1991, his trip to Poland, he's trying to get the Poles who are reforming to get things right, to get the reforms right. Don't copy the things uh, in the Western experience that are bad. Get, copy the good stuff. <clears throat> this line of argument continued throughout the 1990s as the Holy See vigorously opposed a stronger push by international organizations following the lead of major Western countries, including the U.S. under President Bill Clinton, to, pr to promote abortion, contraceptives, and anti-life mentality, and a Western-style feminism, and to constrain or hinder the freedom of the traditional family. It was during the 1990s that John Paul issued his moral philosophy encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, in 1993, as well as his extensive discussion of the respect for life issue in Evangelium Vitae of 1995. The Holy See often appeared critical of the West during this period, not especially aligned with it. Following Pope Benedict, whose name even suggested an emphasis, perhaps for the last time, on revivifying the European Christian tradition, Pope Francis has distanced the Holy See from an emphasis on Europe. He has only made eight, excluding Turkey, of a total of 17 foreign trips to European countries. Pope Benedict, actually 18, because his 18th is today. 
Pope Benedict XVI, in contrast, made 16 of his 25 trips to European destinations. Two of them were in order to attend World Youth Day, and I'm excluding Turkey as European. Today, 28th of April 2017, Pope Francis is beginning his 18th trip, as I said, to Egypt. Of these, Pope Francis's trips, two are one-day trips to majority Muslim countries, Albania and the Bosnia and Herzegovina Federation. One of them was a one-day trip to address the European Parliament in Strasbourg, and the trips to Greece and Sweden were primarily ecumenical. Only the trip to Poland in the summer of 2016, where the, 20, where the 2016 World Youth Day took place, contained events normally associated with pastoral visits by a pope to a country's local churches. A trip to Portugal is scheduled for next month, for May 2017, to commemorate the centennial of the Fatima apparitions. A diminishment of Europe can also be seen in the three consistories to create new cardinals held by Pope Francis. After the November 2016 ceremony, Europe had only 54 voting age cardinals, while the 2013 conclave which elected him to the papacy, there were 60 from Europe. Pope Francis' most detailed analysis of Europe's situation is perhaps contained in the address given upon his accepting the city of Aachen's Charlemagne Prize. The Pope hopes and believes that by looking to its past, Europeans can regain the creativity shown by their forefathers to solve their current problems. But he reads the European past as open to great variety and dialogue, not closed in upon itself. He repeated the same themes in his address for celebrations in Rome for the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome and the creation of the uh, predecessor organizations of today's European Union in late March. His view of renewal in Europe is not some sort of recovery of Christendom, which only looks to restore institutions, practices, and customs of the past, but rather to integrate dialogue and engage with non-Christians, non predominantly Muslims, and secularized Christians in the Europe of today. He is thus resuggesting an emphasis on evangelization, open to new forms of institutionalizing Christianity's embodiment in the political, social, and economic systems and culture of Europe. Pope Francis has made two relatively long trips to Asia, to South Korea in 2014 and to Sri Lanka and the Philippines in 2015. A trip to Indonesia is seen to be likely possibly this year for the 7th Asian Youth Day in summer of 2017. He attended the 6th Asian Youth Day during his South Korea trip. He's also committed to a trip to India and possibly Bangladesh in 2017, perhaps at the same time along the way. So stopping there on the way to Indonesia or back. Pope Francis has said on several occasions that the church's future is in Asia due to demographic trends. The renewed and successful trend of the Holy See's dialogue with Islam following the May 2016 visit to the Vatican of Sheikh Ahmed Al-Tayeb, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar in Egypt, one of the most prestigious leaders of Sunni Islam, would also be helpful to, for the Vatican's outreach in Asia. The Grand Imam invited the Pope to visit Al-Azhar in Cairo, and this visit took place today. St. John Paul II visited Al-Azhar during his trip to Egypt in, in February of 2000. Pope Francis often stresses the importance of dialogue with Islam, especially at times when tensions increase due to terrorist attacks. It's also instructive to observe the countries which he chooses to visit. Instead of trips to the usual major Catholic countries or other important and powerful states, he chooses smaller ones. In South America, for example, other than the trip for World Youth Day to Brazil in 2013, which had already been scheduled, his one other trip to the continent consisted of stops in Ecuador, Bolivia, and Paraguay, all relatively poor countries containing a high proportion of indigenous peoples among their populations. His trip to the Philippines, always now a major stop uh, for any pope since Paul VI's visit in 1970, included several days in Sri Lanka while on the way to Manila. The African trip included a stop in the Central African Republic, which was in the midst of a violent conflict between Muslim and Christian militias, where Pope Francis perhaps judged that an appeal for interreligious peace and dialogue 
would be especially appropriate to deliver for the local population, but also as an example for the rest of the world. This type of appeal would also perhaps aid Christians elsewhere in Africa facing hostility and violence from neighboring Muslim communities and would also discourage the formation of Christian militias or the resort by Christians to force. Pope Francis comes from Argentina and his native country's history and tradition has placed it as a contender against Anglo-American world leadership, even though Argentina is an important U.S. ally as a signatory to the Real Pact and a member of the Organization of American States. Even though the Holy See's position on climate change, enunciated most recently in Laudato Si 2015, places it in agreement with a global consensus, and even though the Holy See's position is in line with the position taken by Benedict XVI, as well as St. John Paul II, the greater attention given by the international community to the issue has allowed the Holy See to discuss and champion more vociferously than previously the concept of the common good as applied to the international system, which can be seen as a moral issue and thus especially in the purview of a global moral authority. The Holy See's position allows it to appear as a champion of smaller and less wealthy countries which may suffer greater damage due to effects of climate change, for example, rising sea levels, effects on agriculture, and so forth, and thus as a gentle critic of the wealthier and more powerful countries. Pope Francis especially appears to be subordinating the world policy of the Holy See to furthering basic elements of the Christian message, perhaps in order to spread more widely that message. This involves breaking down as many barriers as possible, turning especially to the poor and marginalized, and emphasizing interreligious dialogue. It also involves the re-evangelization, sometimes called the new evangelization, of old Christian countries, the populations of which have fallen away from the church or have become non-practicing. Pope Francis appears to be using anything which furthers such a basic strategy, which might include traditional popular devotions, which he supports, but also an openness to greater enculturation, which would utilize the variety of non-Western cultural modes of expressing the Christian faith in religious art, music, literature, the liturgy, and so forth. The U.S. should not fear, however, episodes of seeming greater distance between the Holy See and its own global stance. Ultimately, both entities are trying to strengthen fundamental institutions which are basic to world peace, development, and civilization, rule of law, peace and stability, education and cultural understanding, the security of property. If from time to time there are differences between them, this may be conducive to the Holy See's credibility as an independent actor. U.S. leaders should not want popes to appear to be too close to them and should welcome their usually diplomatic critiques. Furthermore, the Holy See's traditional role as a mediator is very valuable and it is trusted especially because the Holy See is not really a state like other states with political and economic interests to defend and enhance, but rather a moral authority which truly is trying to secure peace. Even when our respective leaders disagree, we are also on the same side, even if not formally allied, which still is the side of Christian civilization and is always confidently open to what is new and old, to quote Matthew chapter 13, because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, to quote Hebrews. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.